What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? What's why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, we are here to answer that question. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Chile, you'll want to dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. If you're watching us on TV today, you can participate as well. Here's our email address, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. And uh, we also have Rich Jesse handling social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both those platforms right now, along with all of our other uh, media efforts here. So just uh, put that question of yours in the comments box. Rich will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio. Hopefully we can get your question answered on today's program. Again, the phone number 833 833- 288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Fascinating question here from John, who says, There is a local Plymouth Brethren Chapel in my neighborhood. They believe they are a true continuation of the early Christian community, not the Catholic Church. They denounce the Catholic claim that Jesus founded the Church, as they don't believe in the papal succession, starting with Peter, Would you be able to provide me with any other persuasive factual evidence in support of Jesus founding the Catholic Church and support of Catholic doctrine? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm familiar with the the Brethren folk, and they take the New Testament as their rule of life, believe that that is the blueprint for Christian living. One of the interesting things that has occurred to me over the years is that that's not what the apostles did, obviously, nor the churches that they founded, because Mm. the New Testament didn't exist. And even after the New Testament texts were composed, they did not exist as a canon, that is to say, a, an authoritative list that was put together. And uh, and even when it existed as a canon, it wasn't received by its recipients as a rule of life, right? So when you actually look at the writings of the earliest Christians, they tell you what their rule of life was, and it was the authority and the teaching and the traditions of the Catholic Church. And that's explicit in the writings of the earliest Christians that we have. So whatever else you can say about the Plymouth Brethren, their way of life is not apostolic, and it doesn't conform to the pattern of the earliest Christians. But that wasn't your question. Your question was, what evidence is there for Christ having founded the Church? Well, how about the express words of Jesus himself, who said, I will found my Church? Bingo. Yeah. And and the writings of the Apostles uh, that, that... uh, clearly understand the Church to be one holy Catholic and apostolic. Mm-hmm. That there, There's no conception in Christian antiquity of, of, say, a variety of independent, autonomous congregations. Um, rather, there's an understanding that those congregations are participants in a common enterprise and subject to a common authority. I mean, what else could you take away from the 15th chapter of the Book of Acts when the apostles and elders meet in Jerusalem in a council and decide matters of universal policy that are then imposed upon and carried to all the churches throughout the world. Um, so that is, uh, that's explicitly the teaching yeah. of the New Testament. And, and why otherwise would, uh, would Paul have said, 
so for example, to Titus, uh, Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you could appoint successors to this ministry, and to Timothy to fan into flame the gift in him through the laying on of Paul's hands, mm -hmm. if there was no intention to perpetuate a sacred ministry from one generation to the next, given that that's explicitly what the apostle said he was doing. Sure. Um, and then, extra-biblically, you get into the writings of the second-century church fathers, the apostolic fathers, like Ignatius of Antioch, and the, the mm -hmm. teaching of Catholicity and apostolicity and, and apostolic succession is absolutely explicit. So, I mean, this is an historical question. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm sorry, but the Plymouth Brethren position just falls apart. Okay. Well, John, thanks so much for your question today. Here's one. Uh, this is an email that came in overnight, David. Uh, uh, Joanne says, My mother has always prayed her rosary, and she has dementia now. Her new caregiver wants her to wear her rosary as a necklace. Is this permitted? If I do, I, I don't believe it's proper. Please address my concerns. Okay, thanks. I know that Catholics, uh, many Catholics, have objected over the years to the idea of using the rosary as jewelry on the grounds that, you know, it has a sacred role in their life and their daily devotions, and they don't think it should be treated as a kind of adornment, you know, for, you know, fat of fashion sense. And I appreciate that, and I respect that. And, you know, I personally, I don't wear rosaries around. You know, I don't wear a lot of jewelry at all, except for my wedding ring, but I certainly don't wear rosaries. And, uh, and, and sometimes in pop culture, you will see people wearing rosaries, and you wonder about other things in their presentation and lifestyle if wearing a rosary is perhaps, say, let's put it mildly, a bit incongruous with, you know, <laughs> other things that they're up to. Yeah. So I, I understand the objection. Um, however, it doesn't have the force of law. There is not, to the best of my knowledge, a canon of the Catholic Church that says Catholics shall not wear rosaries. Um, it's certainly nothing in divine law. It is a, it is a pious custom, and it, it may be what your grandmother would have wanted, right? And so I think, you know, if, uh, if, the, if the caregiver is insisting that the grandmother wear the rosary, and you have reason to believe the grandmother, when in her right mind, would not have wanted to do that— then it's uh, then I would think it would be reasonable to say, hey, you're asking my grandmother to do something that 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 I know that you know if, when she's in her right mind she really doesn't want to do. So I wish she wouldn't do that. Yeah. Um. You know, is it some kind of sacrilege? I I think that would be pressing the matter. I don't I don't think we could draw that kind of conclusion. But that it offends her sensibilities, you know, is enough reason not to do it. Very good. And Joanne, thanks so much uh, for your email. Very sorry to hear about your mom there. Uh, Andrew on YouTube says, Doctor Anders, how realistically should Catholics take up the Protestant? Jim trope of Jesus building us a mansion in heaven. Yeah, thanks. So if if you want to know, do I think that we're going to get brick and mortar in the next life? <laughs> right. Um, whether we have brick or mortar or not, that's certainly not the primary reward of heaven. I mean, the, the teaching of Scripture and sacred tradition is that the primary reward of the just is the vision of God— and we're not talking about a vision with human eyes. We're not talking about, you know, like, you know, getting a sneak preview of the next, you know, b big Oscar-winning movie. We're not, yeah. not that kind of vision. Vision here is a metaphor to refer to a kind of intuitive knowledge of God and his essence that satisfies every possible desire. It's a spiritual reality, um, not something that can be perceived by sense. Now, we will have bodies, and presumably they'll be up to something, but with respect to that, Paul says, I hasn't seen, ear hadn't heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him. Yes, indeed. Andrew, thanks for checking us out on YouTube. In a moment, we'll get to Natalie on the phone from Boise, Idaho. Lines are available for you as well at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Do stay with us. 
It's called A Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Before we go to the phones, uh, we just heard from Father Bill Fox, who checked in on YouTube. Father Fox says, on a practical matter, most rosaries are not built to be worn, and they will fall apart. Yes, that is true. That is true. You know, over the years, I've owned a lot of rosaries, and some of them are are beads that are strung, you know, on a cord. Yeah. But occasionally, I'll, I've picked some up that are beads that are hooked together with little tiny metal hooks. Yes. yes. And I always like the metal hook variety, except they tend to break easily. Mm-hmm. And I've I've gravitated more to the beads on a string version because they tend to not fall apart so much. Sure. I know that EWTN sells the Warriors Rosary, which is built like a tank. It'll, <laughs> it'll be here when we're long gone. It's right. just fantastic. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Natalie, a first-time caller from Boise, uh, listening on the great Salt and Light Radio. Hello, Natalie. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, well, I have my husband and I have lots of family that, have, um, that were baptized Catholic, and then didn't really take their faith serious and then married someone outside of the Catholic Church. Um, and we have one couple, and like specifically, where he came back to the faith um, and his wife um, was not Catholic. And so she doesn't want to get their marriage convalidated because she would have to admit that her marriage is not valid. And they have children, and she believes completely that their marriage is 100% valid. Um, And so I guess it's a two-part question. So the first part is, like, is there anything that we can do to help encourage that or what we can um, do? And then the second part of the question is, we have multiple, I mean, three or four people in our family that are married like that. Is there any obligation as Catholics that we don't? recognize their marriages, or yes. how do we work around I'm with you. I, got, I understand. I understand. Okay, so let me ask you a question real quick. So this situation is, you, I think you said you have a brother who's come back to the practice of the Catholic faith, but he has a non-Catholic wife, and she's unwilling to have the marriage convalidated. Is that correct? Yeah, specifically because she believes got the you. marriage is... Got you. Okay. I have a solution for him, and it will not offend the wife. In fact, it is designed specifically for his situation. When you have a, a married couple, or, you know, a couple that would like to be married, and they've, so they've assumed themselves to be married, but it turns out their marriage is invalid, one of them wants to have the marriage convalidated. The other does not want the marriage convalidated. The one that does not is a non-Catholic, but otherwise willing to remain in the marriage. When you have that situation exactly, there is a procedure called radical sanation. Radical sanation. And it allows for the marriage to be validated by the church without the unwilling spouse participating in an ecclesiastical ceremony. And so that is what your brother needs to do. He needs to approach the church about the radical sanation of his marriage. Now, it is possible that if he approaches his parish priest and says, I want to have my marriage radically sanated, the priest will look at him like he has two heads and say, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You need to have your marriage convalidated. Mm. And that is only because, you know, priests, they should know this, but, you know, there's such a thing as falling asleep in canon law class when you're in seminary, and it's not the most common procedure in the world. And so since it's not something they do every day, there are some priests that may not immediately jump up and say, oh, that's the right thing to do. 
but that's the right thing to do. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So so if he if he doesn't get an immediate response from the priest, he needs to press in a little bit harder. And if that doesn't work, he needs to go over the priest's head to the marriage tribunal and talk to one of the canonists from the tribunal in your diocese about radical sanation. And uh, and that that will solve the problem. And the and the wife doesn't have to do anything. Like literally, she does not have to move an inch. All she has to do is want to be married to her husband. That's all she needs. And the church can radically sanate the marriage. So that's what I advise for him to do. Now, uh, the, as to the theoretical question, so here's the situation. In, in Protestant theology, marriage is neither a sacrament nor is it an ecclesial state. Um, what is marriage if you're a Protestant? How do Protestants understand marriage? Well, generally Protestants think that marriage is an institution founded by God, so they don't they don't think it's unholy or something. Mm, yeah. But they think it's founded by God in the same way that say civil government is founded by God. Government is a is a divine institution according to the Protestant faith and that you know God has set up the orders of the world for the sake of the common good. Mm-hmm. You know, plants grow on time, the sun goes around the earth and civilization set up governments for the sake of the common good. These are all good things about the natural order that God instituted, but they're not sacraments and not they're not like intrinsic by their very nature to the constitution of the Christian church as such, okay? Um, and, uh, uh, but the Catholic, and so, and so, really, for that, all that you really need to have a valid marriage if you're a non-Catholic person is, uh, is just this, this commitment to lifelong fidelity to one another for the sake of raising a family, and, you know, family has that function. It, it replenishes society. It is a kind of cell in the natural order of civilization, and that's all you need to make it get off the ground and work, mm-hmm. okay? But if you're a Christian and a Catholic, there's a different theology of marriage. Here's the theology of marriage. All right, you Protestants and you non-Catholics, are, you're right as far as you go. Marriage, in that sense, is natural. It is part of the civil order and the constitution of nature, and it does serve the common good, and it does replenish society, and all those things are true. But if you're a baptized person, it's that, and it's also a sacrament. It's also a sacrament. It's a sacred sign of Christ's union with the Church that's accompanied by divine grace to live that sign worthily. And it's an ecclesial state. What do I mean by an ecclesial state? It's an order of life within the Church that Christ founded. In the same way that, say, you know, being a priest is a, is a, is a, there's, a there's an established order of priests within the Catholic Church. They have an office. They have a function. They rule, they govern, they teach, they sanctify, they, they, they administer the sacraments, they represent the bishops in their jurisdictions, and they have a, they have a function and an office and a place. They're constitutive of the architecture of Catholicism. You can't have the Catholic Church without the priesthood, mm-hmm. right? You can't have the Catholic Church without the episcopacy. Religious life, being a monk, a nun, a religious brother or sister, is also an order of life within the Church. Uh, their job is to, is to take the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and to exemplify the perfect commitment to God that is the call to holiness of every person, but to do so with a particularly imminent form of life that is then a witness to the rest of the Christian faithful. But here's the kicker. If you're a Catholic, you also believe that Christian marriage is also an ecclesial state within the Church. It's just as much a part of the Church's architecture of the brick and mortar of Catholicism as is priesthood, episcopacy, mm-hmm. or or uh, or religious life, and and because Catholic marriages, first of all, they not they not only replenish society, but they replenish the Catholic faithful. They like they, they they make new Catholics. Like where do you think priests come from? <laughs> right. 
Um, but they do so in a way that, that the family itself becomes a kind of mini-parish or a mini-congregation. St. John Chrysostom called it a domestic church, and that language has become very popular, especially since John Paul II. And so parents have a kind of religious and spiritual jurisdiction over the lives of their own children. They're like priests of their own families. Um, they're like little mini-missions of, of the Catholic parish out there in the world, sanctifying the world and bringing the presence of Christ to their neighbors. And, uh, and now let's talk about, since that that community, that domestic church, that that those relations that have that job in the world, uh, what makes them that? Well, it's the sacrament of matrimony. Matrimony is what constitutes them as that domestic church. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about how sacraments ought to be celebrated. What would you think? What would your your brothers and sisters all think about a Catholic priest who said, "I'd like to be ordained a Catholic priest, but what I would like to do is I've I, I love Disney World in Orlando." And I have this lifelong dream that I will um, I will hogtie my bishop, and I will carry him to the top of Space Mountain, the roller coaster <laughs> at Disney World, and he will ordain me to the sacred priesthood at the top of Space Mountain. Mm. After which we will all go for a celebratory, uh, you know, uh, meal at Hooters or something. All right. Wow. That I think you would see at a glance. That would be a highly inappropriate way. To celebrate ordination, yes. right? It would not be appropriate to the dignity of the office or the role that he's going to occupy. And in fact, if he hogtied his bishop and made him ordain him at the top of Space Mountain, it would not even count as an ordination, mm. right? It would be invalid because it doesn't follow the canonical form that the church has laid out there, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, but marriage is just as much as an ecclesial state. And so someone that says, eh, I don't want to bother with the church, I'd rather get married by a justice of the peace, or, you know, I've always wanted to get married on the beach, or, you know, I, I knew a couple one time that actually got married underwater. Oh, my. You know, they were scuba divers, and they, they took a justice of the peace down, you know, about you know 20 feet under with them. And, okay. And, and that's what, the, the church says, that's not actually appropriate to the nature of the sacramental act that you're undertaking. And so okay. there is a law of the church that says, if you are going to marry as a Catholic— you must do it in the presence of the minister of the church, a priest or deacon, and in the sacred space of the church itself, and in proximity to the Eucharist, and ideally with a Catholic mm. Mass, because that underscores that this is an ecclesial state, this is a spiritual state, it, 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 it's, it's essential to the life of the church, and the church is essential to the successful function of the marriage as a sacramental reality. And if you don't do it that way, then we don't recognize your marriage as valid. That's the logic of the thing. Now, the church can dispense with that. A bishop, for a good, for a grave reason, can dispense from canonical form. Mm -hmm. But without that dispensation, it's not a valid marriage. And then finally, while it is, in fact, the promise of the spouses that affects the sacrament, right? So the church doesn't confer marriage on people. It, it witnesses marriages that they confer upon one another. Nevertheless, the persons involved, the Catholics involved, the husband and wife, belong to the church and are within its jurisdiction. So just like a bishop can tell a priest, you know, you have to celebrate Mass in that parish, not this one. You're the pastor, you're the parochial vicar, or I take away your ministry for some reason. Mm -hmm. In the same way, in the exercise of their ministry as pastors, as it were, of their own domestic church, huh. they're also subject to the authority of their bishop. And see, you know, a lot of Catholics, they don't, I don't, this is my marriage, my family, I'm going to do it my way, <laughs> I don't have to listen to my bishop. Well, yeah, you do. Yeah. yeah, you do have to listen to your bishop. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Natalie? It is. I guess the only thing I would say is, like, what is our obligation as, like, faithful Catholics 
to in recognizing those marriages. Like if if it happens oh, again. Oh, I see, I see, I see. So if your relatives go out and do something that the Catholic faith says they shouldn't do, and that could be marrying outside the church, but there's a lot of other things we're not supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. right? What do you do with that? Okay, well, um, depending on the severity of the case, sometimes you can admonish them. When do you admonish people? Well, you admonish people when um, it's a serious matter, and they're likely to listen to you, and you're the best person to make the admonition. Usually with situations of these kind, none of those conditions pertain, because you go state your opinion, and they can they can tell you what they think of you and your opinion, right? And <laughs> yeah. off you go, right? Yeah. And so what you do is you make a prudent judgment, and only you can make this judgment. I can't make it for you because I don't know these people. You make a prudent judgment about what is the best thing for me to do? How can I help them make incremental steps towards the Catholic faith? You know, gradually. I may not get there all in one day. And probably the best first start is how can I establish a a loving, trusting relationship with them? Because if I just come beating them over the head with the catechism, I'm probably going to alienate them, and that's not going to bring them closer to the truth of the Catholic faith. Let me let me lead with my love and compassion and, and goodwill, and then maybe down the road they'll be open to a deeper conversation about the nature of marriage. Natalie, thank you so much for your call. Great way to kick off the program today, and that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 833- 288-3986. If you're watching us on TV today, send us an email at ctc at EWTN.com. We just heard from a Todd in Jupiter, Florida. He called in but couldn't stay on the phone. His question is, does the Catholic Church believe in separation of church and state? Also, do they want America to be a theocracy like evangelicals seem to? And finally, what would a Catholic state even look like? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. With respect to the first question, do Catholics believe in the separation of church and state? Catholics invented the concept of the separation of church and state. And before Catholicism, you won't find a civilization on the planet that advocated the separation of church and state. It really was, and and I'm talking here, <clears throat> the, the, the hated and despised Latin Roman Catholics under the Pope. Right, like everybody's bugbear that nobody likes. You know, it's like <laughs> Chesterton said that the reason he became a Catholic is everywhere he went, people disagreed on everything except one thing, and that was that the Catholic Church was infallibly wrong. And he decided that a church that was infallibly wrong was a lot more interesting than anything else on <laughs> offer. And when he investigated the church that was infallibly wrong, he concluded it was infallibly right. Ah. Right. So yes, the Church of the Inquisition, the Church of the Crusades, the Church that everybody loves to pillory was in fact the institution in world history that invented the concept of the separation of church and state. Um, and, and the foundation of this teaching is twofold. One is, uh, is Christ's statement to Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world, and that Christ called a company of disciples out of the world to form a, a, a body of believers into a, into a corporate unity, into the Catholic Church, to be salt and light in the world and to witness a new way of living but predicated on baptism and a change of life, understanding that not everyone in the universe will follow that way of life. So mm-hmm. you're not going to impose a Catholic ethic on people who, who shun the offer of grace, right? And so, so you, you actually can't institute, say, a fully Catholic polity on a non-Catholic population because Catholic living presumes the Catholic way of life and the sacraments, mm-hmm. which are never forced on anyone against their will, right? Um, and then secondly, Christ created... Uh, an order within that 
within that corporate body um, of a visible authorities, pope, bishops, priests, and so forth, whose jurisdiction is over souls and not over territory as such, and uh, and that the church, uh, I'm running out of time, but basically the, the, the jurisdiction of the civil government you know, over peoples and land is of a fundamentally different order than the jurisdiction of the church over its own members. Now, we'll, we'll get to the other parts of this question after the break. Stay with us right here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. It's called a communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. Uh, just before the break, we were uh, tackling some questions from uh, Todd in Jupiter, Florida. Todd's first question was, does the Catholic Church believe in the separation of church and state? David pointed out that the uh, Catholic Church invented that. So, yes, that is a yes. The other two questions, which we're going to do right now, uh, do they want America to be a theocracy like evangelicals seem to? And what would a Catholic state look like? Yeah, thank you. So uh, in a nutshell, the answer to the second question is no. We do not—Catholics do not uh, advocate theocracy at all. In fact, based on the idea of a separation of temporal and spiritual power— Church has always recognized that there has to be a temporal arm of government that is not clerical. And in fact, um, priests in the Catholic Church are not allowed by the Church to hold temporal office, and they can be excommunicated for doing so. So yeah. if a priest, for example, you know, ran for president of the U.S., he would be violating canon law and being op- operating in disobedience to the Church. So uh, no, we do not advocate theocracy. Um, uh, there, there, there are people within the Catholic Church that take an aggressive stance towards trying to bring Catholic moral principles to bear upon civil government. And there's an extreme form of that that uh, is often goes by the term of integralism that basically advocates for, for uh, the Catholic vision of the world, if, if you will, to be more or less enforced on a pluralistic society hmm. so that all members of the civilization would, would have to follow Catholic norms and the Catholic faith would have a kind of privileged place in society. And the church has basically rejected integralism. So the closest thing that you ever find to theocracy in Catholic political thought uh, basically is not accepted by the magisterium and has been ruled out. And the okay. Second Vatican Council put a document forth called Dignitatis Humanae on, the, on human dignity that advocates for uh, religious freedom as a, as a necessity of natural law and, and, uh, and essential to the common good of souls and to civilization. Um, great book that I highly recommend you read on Catholic political thought is called We Hold These Truths by John Courtney Murray, American Jesuit theologian, highly influential at the Second Vatican Council. One of the books that actually made me Catholic, of all the stuff I read over the years, I read really? a lot that impressed me about the Catholic faith. When I read the whole, We Hold These Truths, uh, something in that just struck a chord with me, and I said, these Catholics have got a lot of good sense, uh, a lot more than the people I've been running around with up till now. <laughs> so I highly recommend that book. All right. And uh, what would a Catholic state look like? Well, um, you know, since we're not advocating for that, yeah. You know, it would look like something other than what the Catholic Church advocates for. Okay. Okay, very good. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family. That would be Catholic Radio Indy, celebrating 20 years with us this week. They serve Indianapolis and central Indiana with five FM stations. Whoop, whoop. So, yeah, congratulations to Gordon Smith. 
somebody that you know. Absolutely. Uh, and his great team there at Catholic Radio Indy from all your friends at EWTN. All right, back to the phones now for Anthony in Plainfield, Massachusetts, checking us out today via podcasting. Anthony, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, this is for Dr. Anders. Uh, yesterday, uh, you, you had a call from, um, I think, a, a parent whose uh, child or older child uh, became an atheist because they couldn't understand how God could let young people suffer, innocent people suffer. Uh, and we all had that problem talking to people. I worked at a, a church uh, food bank at one time, and I... This wonderful nurse, she worked there too. She retired, a registered nurse, and she was a Catholic, uh, and she became an atheist. And she said the reason why is because being a registered, she saw so many young people uh, uh, who were suffering, uh, born uh, with diseases, suffering, and die. And how could, if there was a God, how could he let that happen? And my I gave her my theory on this because she was such a wonderful woman, and I, I want to try to help her out a little bit. And my theory was, and it's just my theory, uh, that young person that was born with a certain disease and suffered for four or five years and then died, goes straight to paradise, straight to heaven, and uh, with an enjoyment so wonderful. And I says, a person like me, who uh, I'm a practitioner, Catholic now, I might have 40,000 years to do in purgatory yet, because even though uh, now I'm maybe doing a little bit better, before I wasn't, and that's why I got 40,000 years to do before I can get there. This young person is going to be there right away, and that was my answer. I don't know if if that was a good answer or not, or if it was a, a little reasonable or whatever. Yeah, what thanks. Doctor I really appreciate, really appreciate the question. So the, the Church's position on the reality of evil is that God permits evil because he intends to bring out of it some greater good. We are not told what the greater good is in every case. Now, sometimes we know. So, for example, God permitted the suffering of Calvary— he permitted Jesus to suffer horrifically on the cross because he intended to bring out of that the redemption of the world. So we do know in that case why there was evil. But many times we don't know. Now, is it possible that in a particular case God allows the suffering of a child because he intends uh, the, the glories to follow for that child to be so radically disproportionate in terms of, you know, uh, glory to suffering, that the suffering seems inconsequential from the point of view of eternity. Sure, that's that's intelligible. Uh, that makes sense. I don't know that we, we can say with certainty that that's always the reason that God permits the suffering of children. But it is certainly, I mean, that, that strikes me as plausible. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my point is that we don't always know. We don't always know. The suffering of children is particularly difficult. Now, um, there's a wonderful book on the intelligibility of the suffering of conscious adults, not of children, by the, the Catholic Thomistic philosopher Eleanor Stump. The title of the book is Wandering in Darkness, Narrative and the Problem of Suffering. It is a magnificent piece of Catholic philosophy about how we can bring good out of evil when mm -hmm. it comes to the suffering of, of conscious adults. 
she deliberately presents from the question of children. She says, I'm not talking about children today. I'm just talking about conscious adults. Everybody finds the suffering of children both intolerable and, and incomprehensible. And so I think the best we can do is to say that God has a reason that we do not currently know. Okay. And Anthony, thank you so much for your call today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Rick in Minnesota listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Hey there, Rick, what's on your mind today, sir? Oh, first, I got a, for the sake of levity, I have to say that there was a, a priest that lived south of here that one time by popular acclamation was made the mayor of a small town. And when I lived in Ireland, the priest pretty much ran the town. But <laughs> just, I think that priest was given a dispensation by the bishop. Anyways, my question is this. Um, oh, I forgot my question. Oh, much has been made about spiritual communion, especially since COVID. Do you understand, and are we supposed to understand, that spiritual communion, per se, is a valid sacrament? Thank you for the question. It is not a sacrament. It is not a sacrament. A sacrament, by definition, is sensible. There is, a, there is some sensible matter. That is to say, it can be sensed with your sense organs, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, you know, sense of touch, sure. uh, smell. If it doesn't have the sensible element, some sensible matter, um, uh, as well as an audible form, then it's not, by definition, a sacrament. Uh, spiritual communion can be beneficial. I mean, l there are a lot of things that are beneficial in reality that aren't the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Beneficial, but it's certainly not a sacrament. Okay. Uh, Rick, thanks so much for your question here. Call to communion on EWTN. Let's go to uh, John, north of Philadelphia, listening on the great domestic church media. Hello, John. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. I was just curious because I, I, I was... I, my question is really... Is there anything inappropriate about a Catholic person who is, let's say, a male, either while they're not married, having friends who are of the opposite sex, or who are married and having friends who are, you know, married to other men? Is there anything inappropriate about that? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. I think it depends entirely on the context and the nature of the relationship. So, for example, I would consider uh, Tom's wife to be among my friends. Um, but I'm never going to take her out to dinner without Tom there. I appreciate that. You know, I mean, there. I just there's some prudent rules of judgment that you follow, uh, you know, to avoid impropriety and temptation and all the rest of it. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with men being friends with women, and Jesus was friends with women. Um, you know, but he wasn't taking them out to the disco. So you you use good judgment. There it is. Appreciate that, John. Thank you so much for your call. I'm trying to visualize a first-century disco. It's uh, kind of tough for me, you know. No sound system, no speakers, no, not a whole lot of music either. But, but you know, they did have falsetto. Well, that so is you true. Could, you, could, you could take the Bee Gees back in time, and they could do an acapella number. <laughs> One of the great programs on EWTN Radio on the weekends is Blessed to Play with our friend Ron Meyer, Sunday afternoons, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Ron talks with athletes and sports professionals about the role that faith plays in their lives, and it is a great show. Do check it out. Uh, Sunday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, Blessed to Play with Ron Meyer, only on EWTN. Here is Natalie now in Houston, listening on her Alexa device. Hello, Natalie. What's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon. Um, thank you so much for taking my call. 
I just had a question regarding my sister. She and I and our brothers actually were all um, baptized Catholics, and we'd all fallen away. Um, and I actually came back to the church about five years ago, and I was able to open up a dialogue with her the other day. Um, she's now married and has two young children, and I just kind of asked her um, if she's thought about or she's talked with her husband about like what they believe like regarding faith, religion, and and God, and if they believe there is a God or not. And she kind of came back to me and just said that um, that she hasn't really thought about it too much before, and she said she's never felt a connection with a religion, um, that she does respect the values of religion. I think she maybe meant Christianity, um, and, and said the focus on family and the good people you can meet through church that turns into community are all things that she uh, respects. Essentially, though, she cares about family, friends, self-reflection, and family traditions, but it doesn't really feel that God has to be a part of it. So I think that she might um, believe that there really isn't a need in life for any God. So I was just wondering um, if you had any recommendations or suggestions on how I could um, open that conversation up more. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, you know, all of us live, I think, in kind of two worlds. We live in the utilitarian world of objects, you know, of, of the material realities around us, of cars and pineapples and uh, y you name it. And, and we, we manipulate those things in a consumeristic fashion for our immediate material advantage. Um, but then we also, all of us, inhabit a world that can't be seen or touched in the same way. And that's the, the, love of, the world of, of love and meaning and justice, or the lack thereof. And, and uh, I think the religious impulse... In, in all people, not just Catholics, is, is born out of the tension that naturally exists between the world, the utilitarian world of manipulable objects, and the world of love and justice and meaning that, by definition, transcends that material world. And for most people, they invest a lot more at the level of the heart and the mind in that unseen world than they do in the seen world. But this raises a question, and that is the question of the rationality of that choice, right? Because if the world of love and meaning and justice is just a fantasy and nothing but a fantasy, um, then, um, then we are fools. But it's very rare that you find a consistent materialist. I mean, he's, he may be a materialist up until you hit him on the thumb with your hammer, and then he says, Al, you shouldn't have done that. That wasn't fair, right? And he appeals to a standard that he can't see or touch or taste. And so uh, for most people who come to a religious point of view, whether that point of view is Catholic or not, it's, it's when they, they finally brought face-to-face -face with the question, at the end of the day, do I really think the world of love and meaning and justice is real? Maybe not material, not real in the way that apples and cars and pineapples are real, but, but real in some way that, that makes an actual claim on my life and the life of my neighbor so that I can point to my neighbor and I can make the statement, that's not fair, and I'm saying something more than a mere impulse, more than a just, just a preference. You know, fair meaning something more than I don't like that, right? That there's actually a standard there that, to which I'm pointing. 
if you think there's a standard there, that there's a real standard, that there is something to be striven for, that life has an intrinsic meaning or value to which we can appeal and we're not just fooling ourselves and living for it, um, th- then you're, you're, you've opened yourself up to the possibility of, uh, of life having a transcendent dimension. Now, you know, what, what's the best way to engage that? Well, it depends on the person you're talking to. For me, for me, um, literature has always been the way to do that. And that could be fiction or nonfiction literature. Mm. People who, who have been the geniuses of the religious life and have been able to express these ideas in, with a compelling force. Um, a lot of people have gotten a lot of mileage out of uh, somebody like C.S. Lewis as an apologist. Um, the book, The Abolition of Man, is explicitly on this discussion. It is about whether the sense of love and meaning and justice to which we appeal has any reality or if it's just this fantasy in our minds. Um, and he obviously makes the claim that, it, that it's real, that the natural law or the Tao that the Chinese would call or the Dharma that the Indians appeal to uh, is a real thing and that it sets a kind of transcendent reference point for our lives. Um, uh, the, uh, the Catholic writer uh, uh, Giussani of Communion and Liberation, um, his book on the religious sense, another one that tackles the same theme. The, uh, the writings of, uh, of Pascal, the Pensee of Pascal, all about this question. So, mm-hmm. you know, great Catholic and non-Catholic religious apologists who have made the claim for, you know, some sort of unseen reality. Um, now, if you're not a literary kind of guy, there, you know, there are other ways into it, other, other avenues into the transcendent. The beauty is one that appeals. Uh, Bishop Robert Barron uh, has produced a lot of uh, audiovisual resources over the years that attempt to appeal at this level. His, his PBS documentary series, Catholicism, is meant to evoke something of the transcendent through the, the uh, via pulchritudinous, the way of beauty, yes. right? Um, but uh, but that would be true for great Catholic poets and artists as well. So mm-hmm. some people, I, I, I know a soul, she's dead now, was a Catholic religious Dominican nun who was a young girl, uh, felt the impulse to religion. She asked her mother to take her into the various churches in her neighborhood in Chicago, and her mother took her from one to the other. She's a little girl said, uh, no, 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 this is doing it for me. Let, let me see another one. And mama said, well, there's one more, but it's different. <laughs> she said, different how? She said, it's Catholic. She said, I want to see it. And she walked in, and it was the Catholic architecture and the sense of the sacred mm. and the sanctity of the place and the transcendence that gripped her. And she looked at her mother, and she said, I'm a Catholic. And as soon as she found out about religious life, she became a nun wow. and lived her entire life as a cloistered Dominican in, uh, in Marbury, Alabama. You wow. Know? So, so, you know, what is it that fires the imagination for the transcendent? Um, others, it might be the ethical life. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, for Malcolm Mugridge, meeting Mother Teresa was a life-transforming event. He wrote the book Something Bold for God uh, because he saw the self-sacrifice of a Mother Teresa in service to the poor out of love for Jesus. And, sure. it, and something went click, you know, so... Could be a Bach mass. Could be a Bach mass. Yeah. yeah, there's so much. Wow, thank you so much for your question there. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Stephen in Jackson, Mississippi, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Stephen, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, first of all, uh, <clears throat> Tom and David, thank you so much for the show. I am an eager uh, convert to the Catholic faith, looking to be received uh, before too long. 
and do I'm more eager for listening to your show as many hours as I have. So thank you guys very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, my my question, I've got a couple of them, has to do with uh, increases in justification and grace. Uh, are those the same thing? What do we get that we didn't already have when we get one of those when we merit an increase in justification? And then my second question is uh, the sacrifice of the mass. Hasn't God already received that sacrifice? I know the sacrifice of Christ is infinite in value, but hasn't God already received that at the cross? What are we offering Him that He hasn't already received? And I'll hang up and listen to your answer. Yeah, thanks. These questions are related, believe it or not, and I really appreciate them. So, so in the Latin West, the, the idiom, the language, the metaphor that we use to describe the process of salvation is justification. That's the terminology that we use. Mm-hmm. In, in the Catholic East, uh, the Greek part of the Church, the word that is used is theosis. The metaphor, the idiom is theosis, which means divinization. They get that word from 2 Peter 1.4 that says we become participants in the divine nature. Catholics, Latin Catholics also talk about divinization, but, uh, but the, 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 there is a difference in language and metaphor. The underlying reality, however, is the same. Right in the Latin West, we talk about grace being a participation in the divine nature. Um, so it's the same underlying reality. What takes place in justification? What takes place in theosis? What takes place in sanctification is the conformity of the soul to Jesus. And um, so we're not. Grace isn't a substance. It's not like toothpaste that gets squeezed into a toothpaste tube. A better metaphor is uh, think of grace as um, like a mold that is impressed upon clay. Mm. And, you know, so perfect conformity would be, um, would be, you know, clay coming to perfectly capture the image of the mold. Another metaphor that's used very often in the East is an iron in a fire, your soul being the iron and Christ being the fire. And the more you, cl- the closer you come in proximity to the fire, the, the hotter the iron gets until it resembles the fire more and more and more. But this idea of a kind of progressive conformity. And the spiritual quest, the spiritual path, is progressive. It happens in stages. And it comes from, you know, an early stage when there is a very, uh, I don't use, I can't think of a good word, a kind of loose relationship between the soul and Christ. Uh, that becomes tighter over time, more impurities are purged. If you want to go back to that fire metaphor, you know, you put, you, you take iron in, uh, iron ore in, you smelt it and take out the impurities until you've got, you know, the pure thing at the mm-hmm. end, right? Impurities are removed, uh, the will is habituated, the conformity to Christ becomes greater and greater. And so that's the sense in which we're talking about there being an increase in grace. It's uh, it's great. I mean, you imagine, go back to the mold metaphor, imagine you know, you ever have like, uh, like you know, sort of dirty clay with sand and rocks in it, and you try to impress that in a mold, and you get something that's, you know, <laughs> shaped, but it's it's got all kinds of bumps and imperfections mm, yeah. in it, right? Imagine cleaning out that clay, cleaning out that sand, uh, until you've got you've got a raw material that's really impressionable and can take that image quite perfectly. That is what sanctification is. It's this this gradual removal of all those impurities enabling a greater and greater conformity of the soul to Christ. And, and so the metaphor, so how can you increase, how can you merit an increase? Well, you know, if you've, if you've made it part of the way there, you know, it's a little bit like going downhill. You pick up steam. Sure. Right? Sure. You can get off the rails, 
but you you can pick up steam. Okay. Um, and again, with the question of the sacrifice of the mass, hasn't God already derived the benefit? So we use language of propitiation and expiation when we talk about the mass and, and the sacraments. But uh, but keep in mind that our doctrine of God suggests that God Himself never changes at all at all. There's no change in God. So God does not derive a benefit from our acts of propitiation. It is we who derive the benefit. And in the sacrifice of the Mass, every sacrament displays for us a sacred reality that is meant to be impressed upon our souls. So there's a sign aspect of the sacrament, then there's the the mysterious supernatural part. But the sign aspect is a teaching, and what is taught is the spiritual reality that's meant to be impressed on our souls. So in baptism, we, we, we figure, we witness, we represent um, the washing of impurity from the soul, death and rebirth with Jesus. And that tells us that is the reality that I am meant to live through this sacrament. What is being figured by the sacrifice of the Mass? Well, it's the offering of Christ's body in imitation of which we are to offer our own. And so by the repetition of the Mass, we are continually renewing our own consecration to God through Christ in a ritual way, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that facilitates that progressive sanctification that we just described. The Mass is the ritual form that our interior sanctification and redemption takes. All right, very good. And Stephen, thanks so much for your call today. Real quick question here from John on YouTube regarding Paul saying, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, God has prepared for those who love him. Do we know what his source is for this or how he came to it? Uh, we have some speculation about okay. that. Okay, right. so there was a spirituality in Second Temple Judaism that has been called Merkaba mysticism or throne mysticism okay and it was a spiritual practice in which mystics attempted to recapitulate some of the visions of the prophets like ezekiel's vision of god's throne on high Mm. there are quite a few scholars that think that paul was a practitioner of that spirituality and that his own flight to heaven that he describes in second corinthians took place in the context of that kind of a spiritual vision that it was it was it partook of a of a of a a formalized description that there was a pattern there that that Jews attempted to recapitulate and so his eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard was a statement about his own spiritual experience that took place in the form of one of these Merkaba trances. Very good. Uh, John, thanks for your question via YouTube. And Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Hope you can join us next time for Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Until then, I'm Tom Price on behalf of our fantastic team. Hope that you have a great day, and we will see you next time. God bless.